Thank you for listening to the Water Christian Podcast. I'm Mark Stanley, your host, and today we're touching on something that I've been thinking about for a long time. So many Christians today misdiagnose the culture and therefore are frustrated in their conversations with non-believers. The primary reason Christianity is not taken seriously today is not because it is considered to be false, but because it's considered to be a hobby. If you really like it, you go participate every Sunday morning, and if you take it really seriously, you go to church for a second time in one week. For a Bible study or a small group, holy moly, you are a super Christian fanatic. But if Christianity is considered a hobby, then Christians who seriously talk about their views with others simply incur secondhand embarrassment. When Christians try to talk seriously about Jesus, we sound like a Trekkie insisting that the Enterprise would obliterate the Millennium Falcon in a fight, even though nobody asked. In today's episode, we're talking about why people began to think of religion as a hobby instead of a worldview, what it means for Western civilization, and how Christians can continue to win souls for Christ in a post-Christian world. Thank you again for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. If you enjoy our show, please like our Facebook page and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Facebook Recommends. I went ahead and disabled our Twitter account. I don't like Twitter at all. We didn't find any success on it. Good riddance. A sentence or two of positivity and a five-star submission on Apple Podcasts or Facebook is really helpful for big tech algorithms. You can also subscribe on YouTube, where you'll find our full catalog of previous episodes. I read all of your comments and reviews, and it's really special to see your feedback. Finally, if you've benefited from the podcast or believe in our mission, you're welcome to make a tax-deductible donation to support our work on our website, wellreadchristian.com. In 2006, George Weigel wrote a piece called Europe's Two Culture Wars. Weigel argues that because Europe has lost the first culture war, it can't win the second one. The first culture war was the battle between postmodern relativism and traditional Judeo-Christian values. This battle was allegedly lost due to the triumph of science over and against religious explanations of the world. The second culture war, which Europe is now in, is the clash of postmodern relativism and Islam. As mass immigration from the Middle East floods Western Europe with millions of devout Muslims, Weigel argues that postmodern relativism is ill-equipped for the raging conflict of values. As Europe became secularized and accepted relativism, they lost the ability to intelligently criticize dangerous anti-Western ideas, which are increasingly prevalent in European countries. Europeans haven't seriously criticized Islam for the past hundred years because, well, why would you criticize someone's hobby? Whatever floats your boat. They fail to understand that Muslims take their religion seriously. They believe that Islam is actually true. And the Westerner says, well, what do you mean true, true? Surely you don't mean like actually real world true, like objective science true. And so the Middle Easterner and the Westerner talk right past each other. They think about reality with different categories. One quick note on science. It's my podcast, so I get to ride my hobby horse every now and again. <laughs> there was a book published by Edmund Husserl in Germany in 1936 called The Crisis of European Science. Keep in mind that the Nazis had been in power for six years and Jewish persecution had been increasing for three years. And Husserl is writing about the emergence of barbarism among educated people. And basically what he says is that in our vital need... The sciences have nothing to say to us. 
all of the questions that really matter about God, morality, the afterlife, who we are, all these questions cannot be answered by science. Husserl says that by leaving this out of our schools in favor of science in order to develop more powerful weapons of war and medicine, that we have lost our way. Husserl wasn't a Christian, by the way. He was a phenomenologist, a philosopher. Not that those two things are antithetical, of course. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the question of knowledge carries authority. And this is important. If a culture thinks that we can't know something, then there's no authority behind that knowledge, and it becomes subjective and unauthoritative. There's a reason why if you want to know about astrophysics, you ask a physicist. But if you want to know about religion, eh, just ask anyone. Basically, no matter who you ask, they're going to have different answers, so it doesn't really matter. As a Christian philosopher, one of my main tasks is to herald to people the death of scientism. Scientism is the view that the only way to know things is to know through the means of science. But most of what we know, we don't know by means of science. We can know all kinds of things apart from science. In fact, the most important things that we know, we know without the help of science. And science is only possible because we know the philosophical prerequisites that make science possible in the first place. Let me make my point with a simple illustration. Draw two circles in your mind. In one circle, put everything you know through the scientific method. You can put Newtonian physics in there, you can put biology in there, chemistry, you can put behavioral psychology if you want. Anything that you consider science, put in there. Now in another circle, I want you to put everything you know from philosophy. All your concepts about truth, rationality, about God, reality, ethics, whatever. Now let me ask you which source of knowledge is more fundamental. Which one really gets to the root of what reality is like? Now if you're a Westerner, you might be more inclined to say science, because after all, it's objective. If you disagree with me about a scientific theory, we can run tests and such and discover who is right. That's much harder to do in philosophy. But hold on a second. While you're deciding which source of knowledge is more fundamental, between science and philosophy, what are you doing? What tools are you using? Are you using science to justify your faith in science? Or are you using philosophy to justify your faith in science? You see, philosophy will always be more fundamental than science. In fact, you need to have a proper philosophy of science. Otherwise, you won't even understand what science is or why it is so useful for discovering effective medical treatments or weapons of war. There's all kinds of things about reality that science has absolutely no access to. In fact, science depends on philosophical presuppositions to even deliver to us the dependable results that we're looking for. Science presupposes logical and mathematical truths in order to secure testability and repeatability. Science presupposes metaphysical truths, such as the existence of minds other than our own, or the existence of the external world, or the fact that the past is real and that we weren't merely created five seconds ago with the appearance of age. Science presupposes ethical truths, such as the value of being honest about data collection, or that we should accept the evidence wherever it leads. Science also can't access ethical norms, such as the wrongness of animal cruelty. Science may be able to describe quite accurately the physics and biology involved in abuse, 
but it could never condemn it. Aesthetic truths about beauty cannot be accessed by science. And of course, finally, the scientific method itself cannot be proven by science. Because even if you could prove that the scientific method worked by using science, you would be arguing in a circle. It is so common today to look at science as the only source of wisdom and truth. Whether you're looking to nutritionists for a healthy diet, a doctor for medicine, or a plumber to fix your sink, science is considered the pinnacle standard for truth, such that if it does not fit within science, it can't be true. But this is simply a misunderstanding of what science is. Please look to science when you're trying to get <laughs> your nutrition right, or your medicine right, or your plumbing right. But science cannot solve all of your problems. It's a tool. C.S. Lewis makes a great observation about science and the abolition of man. Quote, there is something which unites magic and applied science while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is technique. And both, in the practice of this technique, are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead." C.S. Lewis goes on to say that the men who invented science were also very curious in magic, and they did it at the same time for the same reasons. They wanted to contort reality to the wishes of man. The only reason why one stuck around was because it was more successful. But at the end of the day, science is just a tool or a means to an end. At least applied science is. If you value science for the sake of knowledge and not just for science's applications, then you think of science like a Christian does. The Christian values science for its own sake, even if no practical applications could be made. Because studying science is just studying how God created the universe. Knowledge is good for its own sake, because knowledge of the universe is inevitably knowledge of God, who is the ultimate thing of value worth knowing. We marvel at the structure of a plant cell, because it is marvelous, and it is marvelous because God is marvelous. Applied science without marvel and awe is just magic with extra steps. If you're a long-time listener, this conversation will have Nietzschean echoes, because, of course, every conversation about religion, science, and the Western world will have Nietzschean echoes. That's why I spent so much time in Nietzsche and in Dostoevsky after him, as his response and antithesis. Nietzsche was the guy who first saw how and why Europe would decline into postmodern relativism. If people don't believe in God anymore, if there's no authority governing what is right or wrong, or what is true or false, then we are truly and horrifically free. Perhaps Nietzsche wouldn't have predicted the rise of Islam after the nihilistic destruction of the 20th century, but Freud might have predicted it. As the West insisted that values are arbitrary, that life has no meaning and everything is random, and therefore we are infinitely free, here comes an authoritarian religion which says that values are rigid, life has ultimate meaning, Nothing is random, and we are very much not free. After Nietzsche's postmodernism won the hearts of Europeans in the West, their naivety and narrow-mindedness has meant that the West will continue to completely misunderstand the passion and devotion of the Islamic faith. And as long as we subconsciously accept that science is the only foundation for truth, and that religion is a strange hobby that some people get really into, we will lose the very belief structure that made science possible in the first place.
And that's Nietzsche's argument. I wrote about this in my graduate program. I think it is crystal clear that in The Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche argues that Christianity's entire enterprise is actually an aesthetic endeavor. That is, its true goal is beauty, not truth. Nietzsche would say that the Christian wants you to think that Christianity is true and that truth is divine. But whoever said that truth was so important anyway? The real goal of Christianity isn't to pursue truth, it's to justify existence. Nietzsche says Christians are trying to sell you a story so that you can cope with life, so that you can give yourself a satisfying narrative. And our satisfying story is that everything is rational and fits neatly into a carefully mapped out theology, which is free from contradictions in theory or nature. But Nietzsche rejects Christianity, not primarily because he thinks that it's false, but primarily because he thinks that it's ugly. And the history of Western philosophy, and therefore culture, followed him in this approach. Of course, the arguments about the factual basis of Christianity still rage, but essentially Nietzsche says that once you start tangling with Christians about whether such and such is true, you have already conceded the most important issue which is whether or not truth and reason are the best means of making sense of life. That's why the conversation has pivoted into mockery. Nietzsche says that Christians put truth as the highest value. But really, what we're after in worldview questions is a narrative to make sense of our life, to justify the existence of the world. And that is a fundamentally aesthetic endeavor not a truth or reason endeavor. So Nietzsche suggests that we pursue a more impulsive, uh, measured, self-forgetful state of unconditional life acceptance, and that's the way forward. And now if you're a long-time listener, this conversation will start to have Dostoevskian overtones. Dostoevsky's entire life was devoted to the question of whether Christianity can stand on its own not primarily as a rigorous scientific description of the world, but primarily as a story which makes sense of real life. That's why in every single book that Dostoevsky wrote, the Christian characters were the most philosophically illiterate, completely incapable of arguing against their rationalistic counterparts. In the brothers Karamazov, Alyosha, the humble Christian brother, lost every single argument he ever had against Ivan, his older atheist counterpart. But Alyosha had a story he could use to make sense of life. When Dmitri was wrongfully condemned for the murder of their father, Ivan the atheist almost went mad trying to understand how in the world injustice fits in his own story. After all, if justice is just a social construct, then who cares if my horrible father is killed? That means I inherit all of his money. And if my idiot brother is falsely accused and condemned as his murderer, that just means I get a larger portion of my inheritance. Woohoo! But Ivan has this indomitable sense of justice that he knows has no room in his atheistic worldview. Take the money and run, dude. Now you don't have to care about your drunk father or your scoundrel of a brother. Go on with your respectable career and your tea parties. Who cares that the fortune you inherited is blood money from a, fa from a falsely accused brother? Yet here he was, not able to shake the insatiable Christian idea of justice. No matter how many times he told himself that morality is just a socio-biological construct, he could not reconcile that with his moral experience. And all the while, Alyosha has a story that makes perfect sense of the world. 
Justice matters because God is just. We care about justice because God cares about justice, and we are made in God's image. Virtue matters because the only alternative is sin. It's bad enough living in a cruel, evil world. Why make it worse by being filled with hatred and envy and malice and lust and greed? Perfectly rational enterprises, all of them. But it's better to be a good person. Better to value life and love and goodness and beauty. But wait a minute, Ivan the Atheist objects. Those things are just social constructs. Well, go ahead and try living like they're social constructs. Good luck. You won't make it five minutes consistently believing that morality is a social construct. Watch yourself. Pay attention to your emotional states and try it. You immediately revert back to the assumption that life has meaning and justice is real. Even though Alyosha lost every single argument to Ivan, he had a more satisfying story about the way the world really is. And that story matched up well in a way that let him live life beautifully and wonderfully despite the tragedy of life. And Ivan blusters about Bible contradictions and arguments about the problem of evil and all the rest. But after the debate is over, Alyosha's story is beautiful and livable, while Ivan's was cold and sickening. You tell me which of the two brothers is more rational. Do you hear that? The rationalists are decrying that I have abandoned reason in favor of a comforting myth. How in the world could I believe in the Garden of Eden, or the parting of the Red Sea, or a bearded man in the sky who answers my prayers? They just cannot possibly understand that I, along with the Muslim, really believe that a religious perspective of the world is the right one. Let me remind you that I am perfectly happy to go toe-to-toe -to -toe and debate the rationality of believing in God as the most fundamental reality. And by the way, God doesn't have a beard, nor does he live in the sky. Don't get your theology from Farside cartoons. Pay attention to what you think about and how you feel when you think about God. It'll tell you a lot about your private, personal, psychological states, and it might not tell you much about what Christians really believe or what the Bible really teaches. Christian philosophers have been developing good arguments for the rationalists for about 2,000 years. And as far as science goes, once you establish that God created heaven and earth, parting the Red Sea doesn't sound so crazy. But Nietzsche and the postmodernists are wondering why they should even bother asking whether Christianity is true. Just shut up and let me be. You keep whatever religion you want, whatever floats your boat. I think we need more apologists who are willing to speak to the postmodernist objectivists on their own terms. Even today, all apologists that I follow and respect just keep chanting, Christianity is true. Here are the facts and arguments. And people just hear this as an ugly chant. Christians forget that we live in a postmodern world. Especially over the last couple of years, we have gotten used to slogans and chants that sound eerily like calls to allegiance, propaganda. Making an argument to many people just seems like you're trying to sell them something. Contemporary apologists, myself included, have responded to this by trying to convert these people into rationalists and then arguing from reason that all good rationalists should end up Christians. But the truth is that people are really looking for a story to tell themselves to make sense of the world. What I'm really trying to say 
is that Christianity is not just truth for the rationalist. It's also truth for the subjective postmodernist. To insist that Christianity is literally true, or objectively true, or scientifically true, is to undersell it. Not only is it underselling it, but it's also a product that most people today don't want and are suspicious of. If we argue that the best explanation for human origins is the divine creation of Adam and Eve, who ate a forbidden fruit and were cursed by God, that sounds like insanity to them. And trying to convince them that it is literally true or scientifically plausible is not helpful. Alyosha loses that argument and the brothers Kramazov. He loses it over and over again. Rationalists like David Hume will try and tear it apart. And postmodern subjectivists like Nietzsche will just mock you. But there's something so profoundly true about Genesis 2 and 3 that it comes up in every marriage, in every first date, and every time you make extended eye contact with a person of the opposite sex. The Christian story about sin comes up every time lust, jealousy, or pride disrupts or destroys your relationships. Sit there and mock early Genesis all you want. But once we start talking about whether life has any meaning, or why human beings are cosmically alone, or why life seems so hard and brutish, our conversation is going to go straight back to the book of Genesis. Even if we never start talking about any single Bible verse, our theological discussions saturate life. Sometimes we defend Christianity as if only, if only, we could persuade the right people, we could correct the high school science textbooks, and then the whole culture could be fixed. Meanwhile, we don't notice that theology is discussed in every therapy office, in every marriage bed, and in every mostly peaceful riot. Theology is discussed when someone is trying to sort out trauma. What is trauma? How are humans supposed to be treated? What does a well-functioning person look like? Theology is touched every single time a baseball team cheats at the game. Why do we care about winning? What's the difference between winning fairly and winning unfairly? The rationalist rages and the postmodernist mocks when Christians tell the story of God's cursing of the earth. But you experience it every day at work and at home. You're reminded of the fall every time you hear of a murder or a rape. I thought science told you that those things are just natural. And yet here you are, you're reminded of the image of God every day. When you laugh really hard with someone that you love. And these things are not trivial. Rationalists can argue that they don't believe that we're created in the image of God, that that's unscientific. But our entire legal system is founded on it. Our biological, psychological structures which detect right and wrong are predicated on there being such a thing as right and wrong. And if you try to reduce that to mere biology or neo-Darwinian evolution, let me remind you that there is nothing immoral about acting against inherent instincts. In fact, some of our instincts we know to be immoral. And some moral acts go very much against our instincts for self-preservation. I wish I said it first, but I'll credit him. Jordan Peterson said recently that we are having deeply religious discussions disguised as political discussions. And that is exactly right. And more than that, Christians keep arguing as if our interlocutors believe essentially the same things about life, happiness, right, wrong, justice, God, and human nature. 
The atheistic rationalist, the Christian, and the postmodern subjectivist, who doesn't care, and the Muslim, have no common ground in any of these arenas. Politics is basically ethics and follows culture, which follows the academy, which follows philosophy, which follows theology. And we all have very different theologies. And so we continue to talk past each other. And the gods of war beat their drums. Tensions rise and tremors sway the stability of the future. Meanwhile, Christ says, do not fear the world, for I have overcome the world. I think the Christian advocate is presumptuous to assume that what people really want is a good argument. People generally don't want good arguments. Have you met a person before? They are not interested in arguments. It's a rare person that is a true rationalist, and I believe that they will eventually become a Christian or show their true colors as a postmodernist. The truth is that people will believe anything that they think is beautiful. It is the goal of the Christian apologist to answer the Humean rationalist and the Nietzschean postmodernist at the same time. And we can do that by living the Christian life as the embodiment of virtue, truth, and beauty. Be Dostoevsky's Alyosha from the Brothers Karamazov. The Christian who debates ethics and politics has already skipped over the most fundamental questions and is probably answering those questions with the wrong medium. Beauty is what beckons. Christians have plenty of literature and arguments going back 2,000 years. People don't want to hear it. They think it's cringe and pathetic. You're just pushing your weird, awkward hobby on the rest of us. What they need to see is beauty. They need to see the beauty of a just and good and rational God who sometimes violates the laws of nature that he himself created. They need to see Christianity as a myth, but not merely a myth. We need to stand for the incarnated God-man, <laughs> the man who was also God, who died and rose again with a physical, scientifically testable body. And that story needs to be compelling to the person who doesn't really care about arguments and also to the person who deeply cares about the arguments. And we do that by standing at the funeral of a dead child with our chin up because we believe in the resurrection. We need to forgive the axe murderer and love him as Sonia did from Crime and Punishment. We need to attend the funeral of that child as Alyosha did at the end of the brothers Karamazov. We need to be content and joyful in our discovery of God as Leo Tolstoy's Pierre Bezukhov did in War and Peace. We need to be unashamed of our mythic beliefs. We need to boldly say that we live in a world that is closer to myth than scientific naturalism would have us believe. We need to write incredible symphonies as the pieces of magic that they basically are. We need to direct good movies. We need to nurse sick patients back to health. We need to study our heritage with humility and pride. We need to build impressive and beautiful buildings. We need to stand for truth in every arena, from, bio from biological truths to theological truths. And we need to embody love and virtue to each other and everyone else. 
This, my dear friends, is how we represent an attractive and rational God in a postmodern world. The God who inspires love and joy and peace and reason is a God worth taking seriously. Thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast.